0: All right. What's going on, everyone? We're back with part four of what we decided to call humanizing war with John Wagner. And I'm Preston Stewart. John, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for having me. So as a little background. Um, we started talking a few weeks ago about just experiences. John and I went to West Point together, 2005 to 2009. We were in the same company at West Point for four years, roommates for a little while, one semester, right?
1: Yeah, this one.
0: Um, Mm -hmm. went to Fort Sill, became artillery officers together, commissioned together out of West Point, both went to Fort Campbell, both went to the 2nd Battalion, 502nd Infantry, as fire support officers. Uh, John made a little detour in there, off to Ranger School. I went straight to Fort Campbell. We deployed together in 2010, came back together in 2011, deployed relatively together in 2012, and then both left active duty together, out-processed together in uh, 2014, Mm -hmm.
1: Every single um, step of our career. Yeah,
0: every step of the way. Um, so, anyways, John and I had talked with another buddy, Connor McNamara, a few weeks ago about some of the interpreter issues, getting folks out of Afghanistan. And what came from that was somebody saying it might be nice to just hear some normal experiences, if you will, from the war. Not everything is worthy of a book or a movie. And I think we're getting into some of that stuff that was fun, that was funny. Um, sad, scary, whatever, but just the normal day to day of a deployment. Um, before we dive in, I don't think I told you this, Wags, but there's so people leave reviews on Apple and Spotify, and it's awesome. And I go through and try to read those when I can. The challenge with those reviews is you can't respond to them, there's not like a way in Apple to respond and say thanks for the review, but, anyways. Uh, Clayton left one a little while ago that said he, he really liked the story. He said his deployment to Iraq started the same way, preparing to take off from Pope air force base and the engine blew and they had to find another one stay the night on the green ramp. So oh, man, <laughs> I guess it's not that uncommon to get all ramped up, ready to go. And then why don't you sit tight for a little while?
1: Right. Yeah. That is tough,
0: but thanks Clayton. Appreciate you leaving that and, and leaving the review. But so we, Talked through a couple of different phases, you know, kind of the getting ready for the deployment, the getting into Afghanistan. In the last episode, we talked about actually kind of the deployment right in the middle of it when things really started to um, set in, I guess, kind of figured out our groove, move around the battlefield a little bit more. I thought we'd start today kind of picking up around that Dragon Strike period, October, September, October of 2010. And so Operation Dragon Strike, if anybody wants to go look that up, we're not going to get into too many details with that, but big operation in southern afghanistan and i thought a good way to get going john is we went to a i think it's listed as mediterranean restaurant yesterday here in murfreesboro okay and they had some of that bread sitting out you know what i'm talking about yes Yeah. yeah and they had some of the rice that i i'm sure there's a way to describe it but you know what i'm talking about
1: yeah it's greasy but very filling and satisfying yeah
0: yeah like a little bit longer what we normally get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we were eating that and it just reminded me. So I have been at the dinner table was telling stories about the food that we would have at our strong point. So we were at this little austere area no running water, anything like that. And the Afghans would, that were with us would cook every day. And we gave them money at some point to buy a goat and they hung this thing up, killed it, oh yeah, skinned it, and just let it hang. In I mean, it wasn't the dead of summer, but it wasn't winter. And that thing was turning colors and they would just shave some parts off. I mean, yeah. they'd swipe the flies away, shave some parts off, throw it in a pan and then bring it to us. And it was super generous and so nice of them, but we couldn't, it, it was, you rolled the dice eating that stuff. Did you eat it? Oh yeah. Yeah. From, I mean, <laughs> from time to time, because they would bring over like, I can't even say it, what is it, like seven cups of rice with a mm-hmm. couple pieces of meat scattered throughout and the meat's all, it's not like filet mignon, right? It's like tendons and, and, yeah, uh, it,
1: it's like half bone chunks and, and a little bit of actual, um, edible meat in there. It's, it's kind of tough to pick through it.
0: And it was a roll of the dice, like, because yeah. there's no running water, they weren't really washing their hands as much. And, and, uh, you know, we talked about using rocks as toilet paper. So it wasn't the most sanitary conditions. I have no, I'm sure the cooking materials were like never cleaned. Um, right. so we had some well, guys to, who were well, the them, dice
1: to them cleaning is just like swishing some water around a cup or a, like mixing your little uh, utensil in a, in a cup of old dirty water, you know, that's cleaning.
0: Usually in a plastic jug that carried fertilizer at some point, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, food, food at the strong points was always interesting. Do you guys have anything? What was your food like out there?
1: Um, so yeah. I was at a couple of different strong points and it was for the food from American sources. It was, uh, it was interesting because you'd think at the big bases where they have like kitchens and a bunch of different sources of food and they have contracted cooking staffs. You'd think that the food would be much better there, but that wasn't always the case. Some of that army food that they would ship out to these outposts and just have, we would have like a, a single soldier that had some training as like a mess hall soldier, they would be making our meals for the whole outpost. And it was pretty good food. It was a lot of times more hearty and delicious than some of the other you know, food that you get at a big base. Um, even though it was just like bags of, bags of food that they would just throw in like a vat to boil or something, but it still, the end result was very good. And we always had two meals a day. And then if you got hungry between then you just ate a, ate an MRE.
0: Do you think the reason, cause I remember some of it being pretty good too. Do you think, yeah, it's pretty good. do you think it's because we were kind of conditioned? Like we were eating MREs and snacks. Um, so the meals ready to eat, which were, I don't know, some of them were okay. Um, like we we're eating anything we could find for a little while. So any chance that just the fact that it was warm food, we're remembering it being better than it was maybe.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm sure that's part of it. And, you know, it, because we're eating two meals a day and it's one guy cooking for 40, uh, there'd be some... There wouldn't be breakfast ready at 7 in the morning, you know. It, so by the time there's food available, you know, and I'm the last one to eat, I'm eating at like 10 o'clock or something. I'm pretty hungry. So anything that that guy puts on a plate is going to taste good to me, you know.
0: <laughs> if we had... At strong, so strong point dog was where we spend most of the time for dog company and we didn't, it wasn't big enough. It was a building. It was not, we didn't build it. We took over a building, um, and then kind of reinforced corners with sandbags and things like that. So there just wasn't a good setup for cooks to come out there and the cooks come from a different unit. So still within the same battalion, but from the support company within, I think it was F company, right? Fighter company. And uh, they would have to be assigned out to us. And our little outpost got in a lot of little small arms fights. And I, I was talking to Sayer about this the other day. It's kind of crazy because there were a lot of bullets flying everywhere. But they were so inaccurate that it wasn't ever really that scary. Like for as many rounds as came over that outpost, I don't know that hardly any of them like even hit the outpost, you know?
1: Right. Yeah, once um, you get used to it, it's just kind of background noise.
0: So these cooks came out there and they wanted to get some one of them came out with a saw a 249 saw a cook wow I'm like all right who knows the condition if a thing could even fire right um they didn't last long they're out there less than a week because when contact would start they would run up to the wall one of them at least i remember would run up to the wall get his saw up on the wall and and be ready to fire back and it was never that big of a fight And all our guys cared about was getting hot food. But because this cook is leaving everything aside to go try to get into the fight, food's not ready on time. Eventually there was this like, dude, that's not what you're here for. We don't need an extra saw on the wall. We need dinner.
1: (laughs) Right. We got the, we had the walls. Don't worry about that. (laughs) Get us some food.
0: There were guys like reading in their room during some of these fights. Like it wasn't an all out every hand on deck, right? Cook, please cook.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We had, I remember our, our cook, we called him Smitty. I think his last name was Smith. Um, and I remember his ACUs were just so greasy looking just from, <laughs> from doing his job, you know, cooking for that many people. I'm sure there's just grease splattering everywhere. And he had this little dark room, you know, in a little mud hut in the corner of our base. We were at a place called Laca Um, kind of like you were saying, it was an old structure that we kind of, expanded with hesco barriers through the years Um, and yeah he was just like a greasy little kid (laughs) but he made some good food i I really uh i was very appreciative that that we had him to be honest because even though even though they're trained to just like heat up the same food some of those cooks would make a they, they could take that same food and twist it and make it really good and some would just kind of not even care and just overcook everything. And it was less enjoyable. But, but you mentioned like having cooks be part of the fight. We should talk about um, female cooks. We had, I remember one, one mission specifically, we were, we flew somewhere and we were, I think it's when we were starting the base that we ended up calling Ahmed Khan. So we flew out there. Via helicopter, it was a big ordeal. Um, multiple Chinooks. We landed in the middle of Taliban territory, and we were going to like uh, secure an area, bring in engineers, and make a new base. Right. Well, we didn't. We knew that we were going to be dealing with a lot of locals, and we didn't want to insult them. And one way to really insult the locals is to to uh, interact with women. As a male, especially a foreign male from America, so we needed some female soldiers to bring with us, and we didn't have any female soldiers in the infantry, so we brought some of the female cooks on this air assault mission to help us, you know, just in case we needed to interact with some women or children, and we didn't want to insult the locals. So I remember we had we were in in this little compound for. Uh, a few weeks you know no no showers no utilities no anything and we had these two poor female cooks with us that were kind of way out of their comfort zone it's not necessarily what they signed up for but but they they went with it they were they were soldiering on Um, but the worst thing for them was that they're surrounded by guys in this little compound that's maybe i don't know it's 10 meters by 20 meters or something this little Mm -hmm. walled compound with two rooms again no running water no toilets so we had just a big like trench that we would use as a toilet and these poor girls they'd have to like go over there together and like hold up a blanket and block you know block the view for everyone so they can use use a toilet you know those are things that you don't really think about but that's that is a that's a tough spot to be in as a as a young woman surrounded by, I don't know, 50 American males in this little small space in the middle of nowhere, like hats off to them. (laughs) That takes a lot of guts.
0: Yeah, man, we had, uh, that's always something I think about when, you know, the army's more, what's, there's there's female in combat arms roles now. I don't know the right term to use there. I was going to say diversified, but I don't think that's it. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that
1: wasn't the case 10 years ago. Yeah. That, that was kind of a, a new idea to bring women into a combat role in any case.
0: And we had that same deal because at that strong point dog, we just had, our bathroom was, we had the piss pit, which was a hole in the ground that we peed into. And right. then we, we poured gasoline on it each day and kind of burned it kind of mm-hmm. it was a <laughs> it
1: smells interesting awful. spot. Yeah. yeah, yeah
0: smelled great. <laughs> Um and then we had the actual toilet that sat right next to the burn pit. So you could the wonderful view of sitting on the toilet doing your work and you could spit into the burn pit. I mean it was three oh, okay. feet away. You had to walk kind of next to the burn pit to get there. So I'm sure that was <laughs> that'll come back to us, I'm sure. But um it was just a couple pieces of plywood with a toilet seat on top and uh open air. So <laughs> No privacy at all, and you'd just be sitting there going to the bathroom, and and uh, people would walk by and talk with you and all that. Which I I got it It sounds weird, but um, it's a different scenario when there's a female out there. And we it was very rare that we had women out there, and that was one of the main reasons. Like we had to like block off the entire area because there was it was yeah weird little added challenges you don't think about you know
1: right yeah exactly. And um, thinking about like uh, showers at, at Lochakel, there was no showers and our only, we were there for months. And the only time we'd get to showers, if we went to house, the battalion, fab, and the people that were on that trip could take a quick shower before we head back so the whole platoon wouldn't go at the same time. So, you know, maybe weeks where we, where we didn't shower, which is no big deal. It's it's pretty dry there and you kind of get used to it. Um, but we did have one of those camp showers. And uh, I distinctly remember one of my last mornings there. I was like, I'm going to take one of those camp showers, you know, where you fill a bag with water. And we had like a little plywood three-walled structure that you could hang the bag from and kind of take a shower. But it was essentially open air. Like you're saying, uh, you're you're sort of blocked off. And uh, <laughs> I distinctly remember one like beautiful Afghanistan morning that I was able to like take a, a freezing cold bag shower outside. And it was actually like one of the most refreshing things I've ever experienced. It was, it was quite nice.
0: You know what I strangely miss um, is not shower. Yeah. (laughs) It's uh, I I get it. And, and, not showering with no real ability to do so. So even in the garden reserve, if we're out in the field, it'll be like, well, there's a shower trailer over there, or you could go back and it's like, oh, it's like acceptable to shower every four or five days, right? I mean, like, no. Lock a cow, strong point dog, week, 10 days, two weeks, whatever. I kind of feels like a simpler time.
1: <laughs> right. And yeah, not having to worry about a shower or being clean or what your face and hair looks like or feels like is is kind of liberating. You just, you just don't have to care. It's so nice. w-
0: you do have to develop all these little like unique ways of doing things though. Cause you still got to clean up a little bit. So we used baby wipes kind of hit the hot spots, you know, uh, two or three right. baby wipes would count as a shower in the morning, kind of hit the face. And, but we would, we did have to shave every day. And I think this is a little bit u- different in different units, but in our battalion, you were, you were shaving every day, even if you were at a strong point oh, yeah. point. and oh, yeah. the way or I guess I should say the way I did it, I think everybody did it differently is we had a little kettle of a water heater kettle. So I would wake up, pour a water bottle in that water heater, but you couldn't let it go the full minute or whatever when it was boiling because those water bottles were so cheap, it would melt the water bottle. Like oh, you'd yeah. pour it in and it would, it would start to go through. the. Bottle. Um, so you had to get the water heater, like let it go for like 10, 15, 20 seconds and then pour it into the water bottle while it's like scalding your hands. And then you had yeah. warm water and uh, pop a hole in the top. You got to spray it. Yep.
1: Yeah. That's great. Warm, that spray warm shave. Outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We actually had um, my, my now mother-in-law, Melissa, she, she got together a bunch of uh, people in Indiana and they would mail us things. And a lot of times they'd mail us a bunch of, you know, candies and magazines and books, which was very nice, but she was like, what do you really need? And that, at strong point, Lock a cow, I was like, you know, we don't have any way to heat up water and it's getting kind of cold here. Any chance you could like send us a microwave? You know, because we had some power, we had we had power generators, so so they were able to send us this chintzy microwave. And that that was life-changing because, like you said, we would just heat up water in a microwave and then we could have a hot shave every morning. Because <laughs> shaving was you couldn't skip shaving in our unit. And, and like I said, other units were different, but you know, we had, we had a platoon leader get fired from his job for like being caught just outside of a tent without his blouse fully on and zipped up and like in full uniform. I remember was, that. Boom, fired from his job.
0: Was, a good platoon leader working. too. Not, not like somebody that was, they were looking for a reason to get rid of. Exactly. Yeah. He was good.
1: Yeah. He was at Lock and Kel uh, with his platoon before my platoon went there. Um, and that's where he got fired. Um, yeah so we're very strict which is you know the the thought process is attention to detail and if you're not doing the little things right then you're not going to do the big things right so i i get it um but yeah the challenge is when you're dirty it's kind of hard to shave and when you're you don't have don't have running water or anything it just makes it more of a challenge but you do it find a way (laughs) you toughen up your skin
0: so I'll, I guess I'll say it here for the first time, John, thank you for that request for the microwave because there wasn't just one cent to Afghanistan. She sent yeah. me one too. Yeah, she did.
1: <laughs> Those were huge.
0: Yeah, we used it. That was awesome. I still remember where it sat next to our, uh, our battery chargers right outside the CP. That was perfect.
1: Yeah. yeah. Man. Yeah. Um, something else that I, I wanted to talk about at, at that strong point was Uh, you mentioned like little firefight that would happen every day or just kind of just a few pot shots were kind of constantly being heard there was a couple areas though that you knew that if you took a patrol to the area there there could be a a serious firefight yep Um, and I remember we were planning one of those patrols it was directly east a little little northeast of uh, La Cacal and it was into the Sangsar area, which was kind of, for some reason, it was kind of a hotbed for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where a lot of Taliban were located. And based on where we were going, you know, we expected there to be some contact. And uh, we knew that there'd be a lot of chatter from the Taliban on their, on their radios. which uh, is something else that it was super interesting, like how we could just listen to the Taliban on their walkie-talkies. Uh, through our our interpreters, um, so I remember planning one of these missions. We I knew we were going to be in contact, and we were at a stage where we were not trying to like get into a fight just because it's kind of fun. We we would rather avoid a fight and scare off the Taliban with our presence. Uh, so one way to do that is with trucks. It, you know, if, if you have trucks with you, they're less likely to attack you. Um, we couldn't bring a truck on this mission, so we did and i, I still think that this is amazing i never heard of it done before um but i, I had our weapons squad leader's name sergeant Gilpin, and he was just a a large man yeah uh, i remember an impressive person and uh he's like so we need a lot of firepower we can't bring a truck i'm gonna bring a dismounted 50 cal on this mission and and when they see that we're gonna put it in a visible location when they see us with a 50 cal and a tripod on the hill no one's gonna touch us and i remember thinking like you can't do that (laughs) there's no way you can walk with a 50 cal as far as we're going without a truck uh but he he took on that challenge and him and like two of his guys were huffing this 50 cal because the 50 cal alone's like 100 pounds the tripod's another 40 pounds or something then you got all this ammo which is super heavy because it's you know 50 cal ammunition um and the they're also bringing their regular m4s with ammo and whatever else equipment i mean it's it's a ton of stuff to carry it's it's an absurd amount of stuff and you have to bring an extra barrel uh, and the barrel's super heavy so it was it was quite the uh thing to take on but they did it they were struggling but, but we made it to our location i'm listening to the to the chatter uh, from the Taliban on on their walkie talkies. And they didn't specifically say like, oh shit, there's a 50 cal. We should probably not shoot them. But, but their chatter kind of quieted down once we got that thing mounted and pointed in the direction that we knew they were coming from. And yeah, it was a quiet mission. We, we searched this one compound. We did our thing. No one bothered us. No one, no one took a pot shot and then we were out of there. So unfortunately we didn't get to shoot the 50 cal. But I think just having it there as a presence was was uh, very effective.
0: That gets into something that we haven't really talked about that I think is worth it, where, and I'm going to use this as kind of a lead-in to tell a similar story I was thinking about, um, but a lot of the area was abandoned in Zari District, abandoned because of the heavy fighting, abandoned before we got there, which, I don't know, it's kind of one of those chicken and the egg, like, did the people leave because of the fighting or is the fighting more intense because there weren't people there, you know? But um, anyways, the Taliban would use certain areas to fire from and they weren't stupid. They didn't just pick a spot and, and decide that's where they're gonna fight from today. These locations would have weapons hidden in them. So even if we knew they were gonna shoot at us from this barn, you couldn't shoot somebody that was just walking to the barn. right? And they would pick up their weapons once they were there. So you would say, fine go get those weapons the reason they would choose these spots to shoot from is because they would have insanely complex defensive belts of improvised explosive devices every road trail off of every road and trail in every doorway there would be explosives set to go some of these pressure plates an afghan could step on no problem you or i could step on no problem but the minute we load up with gear maybe hawking a 50 cal around um and we go from 150 pounds to 250, 300 plus, it's enough to detonate the mine. And some of these compounds we'd go into, I mean, a dozen IEDs. So you'd say, you're going in there, is it worth it to go in there and find an AK-47 or RPG in the corner, but your platoon has to dodge 17 IEDs who could kill 12 people. Yeah. It's this weird, like, we know where they're gonna shoot at us from, we kind of can't get there.
1: Yeah. And uh, there's some difficult decisions out there because like you said, we would have some intel that, hey, they're storing a bunch of bomb-making materials in this in this compound. Let's go see what's there. Let's find it. Because if we can take bomb-making materials off of the battlefield then that saves American lives and Afghan lives. Uh, however, if in the course of you trying to determine if there's bomb making materials in a compound, you lose five people because someone steps on an IED, that's not worth it either. You know, you don't want to lose anybody. Um, So yeah, I remember a mission where uh, my my first squad, uh, Sergeant Tucker was a squad leader. He he always, he was really good at like doing the searching. Um, So he was typically our guy that would like go into the compound and he and, and his squad would search everything with the Afghan army with us. Um, and there was one mission where, again, I was listening to the, to the uh, Taliban talk on their walkie-talkies and, and sometimes they would just mess with us, but I don't want to take chances. So, so they're saying like, oh, here they come, they're coming to the spot, it's, good. it's gonna blow or something to that effect, like we're gonna get them this time. And, and I had Sergeant Tucker just stop. I was like, don't go any further. Don't, don't go in that next room. What I'm hearing is, it sounds awful. Um, and he wanted to go because he wants, you know, he wants to find the cache of weapons and bomb making materials or whatnot. Um, so I, I remember I pulled him back from that, that one particular mission and I had him send the ANA in because he had some Afghan army guys with him. And they go in and they, they find nothing and nothing happens. So either the Taliban was waiting for us to go in somewhere before they triggered something and they didn't want to kill the Afghan army, which I think is unlikely, or their IED didn't go off, or they were just messing with us, or maybe like you said, the Afghan, the, the ANA aren't carrying as much gear. They don't necessarily have body armor. Maybe they were light enough that they didn't uh, detonate the pressure plates. Uh, but either way, Afghan army goes in, they find nothing. We come out, everybody's alive, you know? And those, some of those critical decisions are, are they're so tough to make. And you, you wanna find the bad guys and the bad stuff, but you don't wanna get your guys killed. And, you know, it, it, it's, not, it's not easy and uh, that one was tough, but fortunately it worked out for us.
0: I think a good, I've always had a hard time explaining the IED threat I think something that comes to mind is for anybody, especially in the Midwest, but I think just about everybody's at least seen a picture or a video of an old abandoned farmhouse or an old abandoned farm Mm -hmm. where there's maybe even a tree growing through the roof. Like think it's overgrown. It's out there in the middle of the field, not next to a road. It's like you got to leave the road to get there. Imagine that as the fighting position. So if you were going to, the Taliban then would lay IEDs along the walls on the outside because we'd probably stack on the walls. They put yep. one on the corners because we're going to round the corners we're not going to come from the middle of the field but just in case maybe put a couple out there in the middle of the field just to keep them on their toes in yep. every doorway underneath every window i mean these ieds were insanely cheap to make so one of those you know this abandoned old farmhouse it's not as simple as saying it's not concrete it's not asphalt it's not even you know a clean area it's it's dirt mud can easily have an IED that you'll never see. And we had dogs, we had metal detectors, we had ground penetrating radar. None of that stuff is hundred percent, not even used together. I mean, I don't know what percent you want to put it at, but I mean, even 90%, if we were 90% effective finding IEDs, that means we probably would have triggered, if they all went off, probably would have triggered 20. Right. There were just so many of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and something else to consider, like in your, in your barn concept, there'd be a bunch of weeds growing everywhere and grass and stuff. And you'd probably be able to tell like, oh, there's some fresh dirt over here. Someone might've buried an IED right there. But the problem with this terrain is that it's, like you said, it's all mud. There's no weeds growing anywhere. Nothing really grows out there unless there's, there's um, some irrigated water. Um, and the type of mud is interesting because it's like, it's like adobe compounds. So they can dig a hole, put an ID in there, cover it up with mud, throw some water on it. And you can't tell that anything was ever dug there. It's it looks completely natural or like the rest of the surrounding area. So, so there's really no way to tell.
0: And you want to know how tricky they got. Um, I know you would have seen stuff like this, John, but we had areas where there might be one wall in a field and they would wait until we got near that wall and shoot from the other side of it a ways back. So the only covered position out of gunfire was up against this wall. So what's up against that wall, a bunch of IEDs, right? Um, And nobody dares run over to that wall because you got to clear it first. So you slowly move over. And anyways, we had other occasions where they knew that we knew that we would look at road intersections because you've got a road crossing, perfect point, put one right in the middle. So they had dug up some earth right in the middle to make it look like There's probably an IED right there, disturb the earth. And in a couple locations, about three meters off, where we would have stopped just to investigate, IEDs. So not the spot you expect it, but a disruption in the spot you expect it. So you stop right on top of them.
1: Yeah, yeah, they were, they were tricky. I remember one one thing that I did, was we had a bunch of uh, grape rows around us and grape rows are interesting because I live out here in Washington wine country now. So I see how we, we grow wine in the States. We have, you know, like these wired fences essentially that the, the grape vines sort of grow up and they're very trimmed and um, it's it's very slender. Um, In Afghanistan, they've been growing grapes for centuries and they don't have like the equipment that we have to make these, nice wired fences so they just kind of make these adobe uh, rows like very thick mud um and there's like three levels there's a lower level where the base of the plant is and then about two feet up there's like a a platform um, that the grapes kind of grow onto and that's kind of where you go to pick the grapes i think and then there's like a, another two feet two foot wall or so um it's it's very difficult to move anywhere in a in a field of grape rows, um, and because of that fact, uh, you know there's trails around it. So the easy route is to take trails around the grape rows, um, but I I adhered to the theory that you always take the most difficult route because that's where it's least likely to have IEDs. So I would literally have my platoon. Like jump from grape row to grape row uh, for, you know, hundreds of meters on our missions, simply because it was very difficult to do. And I thought that it was highly unlikely that there be IEDs there. Uh, So our biggest threat was IEDs. So we would go through this serious pain of jumping through grape rows. And, And to put it in context, you know, our bomb sniffing dog is like a German shepherd. It was so exhausting that the dog just gave up. And I remember our, our dog handler <laughs> had to throw the dog on his shoulder and then like <laughs> trudge his way through the grape rows, jumping from row to row.
0: <laughs> they, I mean, a good visual for people is World War I trenches. These could be four to six yeah. feet tall um, with a little firing platform you can stand on. Yep. And people could move through these and you couldn't see them from just a few rows away. It was, yeah, that was kind of scary at times, jumping over one and like, oh, okay. Um,
1: yeah, and seeing, yeah, there's someone hiding there, and you don't know if they're bad, you know if they have a weapon hidden. Yeah, we had a couple of scary run-ins like that, too. They're probably hiding because they're scared of you, but they could be yeah. hiding because they're the Taliban. You, you never knew.
0: When we were doing an air assault towards the end of our deployment, we'll, I don't know, maybe we'll get to that this time, maybe we won't, but we were, we left the Chinook and Landed in the middle of an open field and then moved directly into grape rows for cover, under nods so under night vision that night, um, and like the most important thing in all of this is that you look cool, no matter what. Just want to lead with that, and um, we're going over the grape rows and they're not easy to get over. And you're you're not like even even when you pack your gear really well. I don't know, maybe it's just me. I was always like wobbly, right? Like I've got too oh, much yeah. stuff in my assault pack and and. Anyways, you're getting over this. Uh, I was getting over this grape bro. My foot slipped and my ACOG and my rifle just went crack right in my nose. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I think the guy behind me said, oh, you good sir. And it was just like that, but blood just pouring out of my nose all over my, uniform. it was dark, so nobody saw it. But the sun came up and I had some nice blood splatterings on my chest from uh, from bashing myself in the face. So fortunately, it was the kind of thing where, you know when you hit yourself in the nose and you start crying? Yeah, yeah, I was crying. So <laughs> it was dark you're, out. Nobody your lucky knew. It was dark. Yeah, <laughs>
1: you can hide the tears in the. Yeah, don't be clouds. scared, sir. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of um, my my first patrol that I led as a platoon leader because I I became a platoon leader while we we're there. I transferred from a fire support officer to a platoon leader because the other the guy that was. The, 3rd platoon's platoon leader, uh, Corey Ritter, he got promoted to the scout platoon in the battalion. Uh, so they didn't have a, a PL. So I take over as we're like transitioning from Terminator um, to doing other missions. So we, we did an air assault. My, my first patrol as a platoon leader, second lieutenant was an air assault mission uh, into, into wherever uh, in the Taliban country. And I had my full platoon, 32 or so soldiers. I had an Afghan attachment, which is like 15 Afghans. And then I had uh, like this ranger regiment attachment uh, because we expected to come in contact with a bunch of locals. And we thought that they might have some intel and these rangers had uh, some ability to like get information out of like cell phones or something. So they were kind of there to gather intelligence for their own purposes. Um, so I had like 60 people in my platoon. I had a, a full Chinook. And it was my first patrol that I was leading. And we, you know, it's, it's terrifying. You, you get in this into this Chinook in the dead of night, you're landing somewhere that you know a little bit about, you know what's a field, you know kind of what's around it, you know where it is in the map. You know that there's bad guys around uh and there's really no cover like every time you expect to land and be under fire and i remember we we landed and it was in a field and we didn't realize that they were gonna water their fields that night so it was heavily irrigated this the moon dust was like just complete mud slippery slick fine mud and chinook lands we get out and we just start (laughs) slipping around where everyone's like face planning we're falling all over the place i remember you know i was i was probably the first guy out and uh i get out and i find some cover and then i'm you know everyone's trying to to follow the plan you know the first first squad's going that way second squad's going that way taking the ana with them and i remember looking around and nothing's going like it's supposed to because we can't move because it's it's so muddy and then i see one guy just like sir i'm stuck and i look at him and his he's like shin deep in, in mud and muck and he, he literally can't get his foot out of the ground i'm like what a disaster what, what is going on here
0: just get back I on the snow like, and go yeah
1: yeah can i just call him back and get us out of here i mean it was such a mess but yeah we ended up making it work. We, we got our way out of the mud and the muck and, and had a moderately successful patrol, but yeah, it was, it was slightly embarrassing because then I had, you know, these Afghans and this Rangers probably just all thinking that I'm the most incompetent person, but here we go. <laughs> let's, let's do this patrol.
0: I like it. all gets easier from there. <laughs> right? <laughs> so do you want to get into, you know, wrap up here in a little while, start moving towards the end of that, period of the deployment. Um and maybe we'll save the air assaults and all that for the next.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I guess to frame it a little bit, our battalion did a several different air assaults in our first nine months or so uh in Zari District for a variety of reasons. Um and because we did so many uh, the higher command decided that it was a good idea to have us do more at the end of our deployment. So yeah, that, that's, that's what you're, you're getting at is yeah, our last couple of months in Afghanistan, were just like aerosol missions throughout Southern Afghanistan. Yeah. And we haven't even started talking about that yet.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot to each one of those. So I don't think that's worth trying to squeeze in at the end, but no. So what happened then was I remember being, I don't remember the month, but I remember being surprised how early people started talking about when we were going home. I had always assumed it was kind of presented as a 12 month deployment, but this was in the window where 12 was normal, less than 12 was not normal, but more than 12 was still happening. So it wasn't crazy to get extended past 12. And we had heard at one point that we might be coming home early. I remember that. Mm -hmm. And of course that spreads like wildfire. So not only did we not come home early and not come home with the rest of the brigade, they assigned Strike Force 2502 to do these air assaults all across southern Afghanistan. So, um, but with that news, we did start to transition our battle space. So the new unit coming in, 10th Mountain Division, and I've done a couple of these now. So I guess two entry, two exits with the two deployments. And I feel like the standard is that the other unit's never as good as you and they suck, and they're stupid.
1: Yep, <laughs> and, Both ways, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're looking at the new unit thinking like, wow, these guys are clowns, they don't know what they're doing. And they're looking at us thinking like, well, this is not how they're supposed to be doing things, and we learned learn better, and we did this at our training mission or whatnot. Yeah, there's, but you're working together closely for a couple of weeks, and you never tell each other that you think that they're idiots, but everyone's usually. thinking
0: it,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, usually. <laughs>
0: That was interesting. They they so we started to build up a new strong point because ours was too small. Our company was only like seventy or eighty, um, a pretty small company. But we were getting replaced by a company that was like one hundred and twenty. So the original strong point couldn't hold. Our original strong point could only hold half our company. It wasn't going to work for them. So we started to build an actual HESCO structure, which are these big barriers made out of dirt, um, bathrooms or porta johns, I guess. Uh, land or an airfield not airfield uh lz helicopters to come in and out at the previous strong point it was outside the strong point so we started building that that was kind of what we did for our last month or so in zari oh. was set the stage for the 10th mountain to come in and when they got there um I, I don't, it was contentious both ways
1: yeah yeah i remember uh part of it for me because we were still at lock and cal so We had a new platoon staying with us, um, and they, part of what I wanted to do was introduce them to all the village elders that I had developed relationships with, and of course the Afghan army that I had developed relationships with, Um, and a couple things come to mind. One of them is, uh, I'll mention Sergeant Gilpin again. He had also developed a strong relationship with this one village elder um in in a town close to us that he was a you could tell he was like a wealthy influence uh in in that particular village and for some reason you know through the language barrier and talking through interpreters sergeant gilpin and this this guy i forget his name the Afghan villager they had developed just a really strong bond and I never understood it because I would talk with the guy too but he and I did not have that bond uh, but Sergeant Gilpin and he did and when we told him like hey we're leaving sorry it's been it's been real we've had fun you know getting to know you but this new American group's taken over they, they were so sad to say goodbye and I, I just remember distinctly this this farewell Back and forth between Sergeant Gilpin and this guy, and and they were genuinely sad to be saying goodbye. You know, and it, it, that's one of those emotional things that you
0: don't expect
1: in that scenario. But it was it was really cool to see.
0: We had, um, yeah, it was interesting when they got there. So our guys had gone for the most part without internet and phones out at the strong point, but this new one we built came with an MWR package, internet, <laughs> and our guys were. You know, through the roof, they could actually talk to their families oh, yeah. on a regular basis. And the 10th Mountain guys came in and went straight to that tent and started using it. And yes. uh, I remember we had to just crack down and say, like, hey, our soldiers haven't had this for like seven months. They're trying so hard to talk to their families. You were home 10 days ago. Like, let's yeah. so it was and but they hadn't spoken to their families in 10 days, to be fair, right? And anyways, we had an issue where we started to have a lot more soldiers. A couple of funny things here. We had a lot of the local workers in and around the strong or not in, but around the strong point, we'd give them reflective vests. So if the Taliban started shooting, don't shoot somebody with a reflective vest. Sure. It was an easy thing for our guard towers because what the Taliban would do then is kind of spray firing you know, on the strong point to disperse the civilians. And um, We got contact one day when most of the 10th mountain guys are there and they all ran up to the wall threw their rifles over and started returning fire. And all of these civilians are out there in their reflective vests, And it was just like an, Oh shit. Oh, man. There is so much gunfire firing, you know. Anyways, miraculously, not a sing, I Take it however you want. I don't know what they were aiming at. Hopefully they weren't aiming at the guys in the vest, but not a single local civilian was hit. And it's one of those like, all right, you can't do that anymore. You wait. Like, But there were, you know, 120 of them and our guys are in the towers or heading back or, or packing gear and like we lost control of, of the other unit. But
1: yeah, yeah, that's what I was. I wanted to point out. Yeah, you guys didn't just have like a few Afghans working for you. You had a hundred plus, so it was like a a mass of people. An his, army out there, yeah, yeah. It was an army out there. So yeah, that is that is incredible that they didn't that no one got hurt in that scenario.
0: We had it was I don't know if it was during that firefighter or another one, but we finally got port-a-johns at the strong point. It was a big step up for us that had been you know burning everything for a while. But with Porta Johns comes a requirement to service the Porta Johns, suck them out. And we use local contractors for that. Mm-hmm. And we had four or five Porta Johns for 60 or 70 people, was fine. But then when 120 more show up, now you've got four Porta Johns for 200. Yeah. During one of those firefights, the septic truck got hit, waiting to come in, took some rounds somewhere. The guy was fine, but he never came back. Right. And he didn't tell us that he wasn't coming back. Right. He just didn't show. So we were waiting for those port to get cleaned. And it's not a matter of like, is it sparkly? It's a matter of it was filling up to where um, guys would have to go in there with a water bottle, push, push things around a little bit. Yep. So <laughs> yeah. they could make room to sit down and use it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we had the same thing. Yeah, Those, mm. those uh, port john operators were, were skittish. And we had no, no contact with them. That was done with like some staffer at battalion would coordinate all that. And all we could do was complain to battalion like, hey, our porter johns aren't getting clean. We had no one to call to make it happen. So yeah, we just, it's not like we were gonna, we, you couldn't stop your need for them. You, know, you, you have 50 to 100 people. And when, when the number of people doubles and then you don't have porter johns, things get ugly quick.
0: I remember seeing guys who walk into the port of John with a water bottle for just that purpose and being like sick to my stomach. Yeah. Like oh, it, it's yeah. a mountain in there that you are moving around with your hand. Just Yeah. That is but, disgusting. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't wait. It was one of those where like, you'd think the port of Johns are step up, but immediately guys are like, Oh, I wish we could just burn it. The good oh, old yeah. days where we sat over an open pit, you know?
1: Yeah, because at least you can you can control it at that point. You're not waiting for someone else that that could just stop working.
0: But in all fairness, the tenth mountain was a solid group. They they were good dudes. Um, they were trying hard. They they were they were doing the things that we did when we first got there. I remember pointing out there were certain buildings that we just didn't go into because they were chock full of IDs. What we were talking about earlier, and I remember some of the conversations along the lines of. Well, have you thought about going in from this direction? It's like, no, you don't understand. Don't go there. You just don't go there. And yeah. it's the kind of thing that just takes time to recognize when we say there's IEDs everywhere. I think it's easy to go like, okay, sure. But then after yeah. a few months, it's like, oh my God, they're everywhere. So.
1: Yeah. I yeah. I, I totally good. agree. I, you know, I, I was being a little bit, of, uh, a bit of an exaggeration earlier i, I didn't, we didn't think that those 10 mountain guys were idiots but just because they're new and they had like fresh uniforms you know we were wearing old acus they had oh yeah the army combat or the new i forget what they were called but the the green uniform multi-cam yeah Multicam, yeah and uh th- that that alone was like a big distinction it's like oh you guys are so cool with your new uniforms um it, and it also made them look look just very uh like like rookies you know it, it just made them seem like they were overly new even though they had very experienced NCOs with them that have been to Afghanistan a couple of times they knew what they were doing but they also just looked like they were straight out of America and we're sitting here in our dingy old uniforms that we haven't showered in you know weeks and it, so, it just there's a there's a big difference there
0: we had a classmate company mate Brian Kent was in that battalion those replacements yes them.
1: yeah, yeah.
0: And they were going, I believe, to an area in the south of our AO called Naugham. I don't remember what the name of the strong point was, but it was in Nalgam. It was was a pretty nasty area. Mm -hmm. And the thing you could not do in Zari District was take off and charge the enemy. You just couldn't because they were behind these defensive belts of IEDs. And I remember waking waking myself up a couple of times. I don't know how I found out Kent was coming, but... I remember waking up a couple of times like nervous and, and worried because if any one of our friends was the guy that would jump over the grape row, yell, follow me and, and dive into a Taliban position, it was Brian Kent. And yeah. uh, I just remember thinking he's going to, this isn't a spot for that. That, that could be really bad. And uh, Kent's an awesome dude, still, still in doing really good work and, and did not do that. Um, I think he did a great job from our conversations about, his time down there in Zari, but yeah, just random little thought during that transition.
1: Yeah. I remember seeing him on the, uh, HLZ at housing. I think as, as I was leaving with my platoon, I saw him and it's so interesting to see like a, a familiar face in that scenario. Um, but like you said, he was such a hard charger that I, I had a quick conversation with him and, uh, I remember kind of walking away thinking like he's got some learning to do because he's he his head's still kind of in the clouds and once reality sinks in you kind of realize that like some of the things you're used to doing or you think is going to work are not going to work so, like you say, you just got to always be cognizant of ieds um, and
0: and you know i wasn't saying like i wasn't saying bringing kent up in that way of uh like not smart super smart dude just like so so motivated and and ready and willing to lead out front um yeah exactly yeah but good dude was a good dude then good guy now
1: yeah yeah because that was a challenge um you know we're trained in the army in the infantry to always be in like a, a wide formation right the wedge formation is you, you, you stay spread out so indirect fire or hand grenades don't take out multiple soldiers at once um and then you have you have a wide base of fire if you get attacked from any direction you can return fire uh with a with a high volume uh but when ieds are the primary enemy what we did was we just we walked around in columns, so you have two people in the front, and then you just stay behind them um, because you wanted to walk. The front people kind of cleared the way, and they gave you confidence that there was no IEDs in front of you, so you stayed directly behind them. You know, five to ten meters behind. Um, so you still had a little bit of an offset in case there was an IED that went off, or a grenade, or a indirect fire, but we didn't have that wedge formation and you couldn't really be as mobile as you're trained to be, uh, due to the nature of the fight. So that was one thing that kind of everyone has to learn and you have to kind of get over that indoctrination of wedge formation and battle drill one alpha. And it's, it's uh, no, hold on, kind of put that on hold right now. We're just going to walk around in two columns. Uh, and it's just as effective because of how the enemy's fighting us. And yeah, that's kind of hard to relearn. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's a good point. So one benefit of, you know, we're going to have the, the pros and cons here. We were in a really nasty area, but we were there for a long time and got to kind of learn, don't go in those buildings. Don't walk down this road. Don't ever drive down that road or whatever it might be. But with these air aerosols, um, it was a new territory every day. Not every day. Every mission was a new area that we'd never been into, which, you know, it wasn't just a couple missions at the end, but potentially, you know, I think in retrospect, some of the riskiest ones for that reason, you didn't know that that road should never be stepped on. Um, you didn't know which buildings were 100% going to, you know, be occupied by the Taliban and open fire Mm -hmm. on you. So, but I think that's a good, I think that move out there to fob Ramrod and, and getting into those missions might be a good one for next time. What do you think, John?
1: Yeah, there's a lot, a lot to unpack there. So yeah, I think it'd be good. I like it. It's been great talking to you.
0: Yeah, man. And you've got some important soccer coaching to get to. So can't, uh, can't hold you up any longer. It's a big day. First game. I like it, man. We'll appreciate you jumping on. We'll do this again soon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank
0: you. Hey, thanks for listening to war stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot. If you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave a review, it helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.